Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastoring at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. If you live in the Payson, Utah area, I would enjoy meeting you and uh, invite you to come. Sundays, Wednesdays, we got a bunch of other stuff going on. You can just find out about it probably on our website, orchardhillsbiblechurch.com, or just send us a message and say, hey, this day of the week works for me. Are you guys doing anything? And uh, we'll let you know. Send us a message on Facebook or contact us through the website. We'd love to get to know you. Today, in our study of the New Testament, we come to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1. On the curriculum schedule made by the LDS Church is 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Now, it's true that 2 and 3 John and Jude are each one chapter. So, they're short books, but boy, there's a lot in them, especially in Jude. Um, Jude is an underestimated book, and we won't be looking at that today. So I would highly encourage you to read it. It takes you, what, three, four minutes to read it. Um, if you slow down, though, it could take you seven to eight minutes, and that would be good for you. So check out Jude, one chapter. But today we'll be in First John. In the first chapter of First John, starting at verse 5, reading through chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John 1 is only 10 verses, and chapter breaks and verses, verse numbers, um, those weren't inspired. Those were added by men later. And so sometimes it's just kind of awkward to, to stop reading at the end of a chapter when that's not how the original letter was read anyway. And so we're um, going to read through chapter 2, verse 2. This is just eight verses, and I think you'll see why it's important that it's all together as we read it, okay? So 1 John chapter 1. Starting at verse 5, reading down through chapter 2, verse 2. The Apostle John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Wow, great, great passage. Starts off with this theological statement that God is light. Verse 5, God is light. 1 John, of course, is the book where we also get the amazing theological statement that God is love. That comes in 1 John chapter 4. But a lot of people, I think, who quote that, who say God is love, number one, they don't know what love is, because God himself being love really should set the definition for what love is, right? And you'll see some people at times who are like advocating for perverted uh, marriage definitions and stuff saying, well, God is love. And when people love each other, God loves that, you know, and it's just like, oh, you don't have any idea what you're saying. Well, um, I would 
doubt that these people know what love is, but also I would doubt that they know that before that it says God is light. And really this helps us define what it means that God is love, if you understand that God is light. Lightness and darkness, light and dark, these are, uh, of course, opposites, and it's a theme in John's writing, not just in 1 John, but even in his gospel. The gospel of John talks about light and darkness. In the very first chapter, it gets into that, uh, of the gospel of John chapter 1. And when he's talking about light and dark, or light and darkness, he is setting in contrast purity and impurity, holiness and evil, goodness and wickedness. He's setting these things in contrast and using these terms of light and darkness as kind of like the representatives for that. And and we still do that today. I think it makes a lot of sense to us. It doesn't need much explaining. Uh, We understand what it means to shed light on something or to be radiant uh, with with light in certain contexts, we still associate light with brilliance or goodness or helpfulness or purity, and we understand darkness too to be, you know, representative of that which is bad. We know children are afraid of the dark, and we know that um, there are wicked practices done in the dark, and those who worship ghouls and ghosts and things of that nature are attracted to darkness. And there's a there's a perversion or a wickedness or uh, just a, a anti-goodness associated with darkness, okay? So here John is saying, when it comes to light or goodness or purity, God is light. He's the source of all that is good. He's the source of all that is righteous. He is the source of all that is brilliant and radiant. God is light. And in him, he says, there is no darkness at all. This means that God has never sinned. This means that God's never made a mistake. This means that God's never been tempted to do something wrong or bad. He himself is the standard of good, which makes him light comprehensively. Uh, it also means that he's eternal. You, you cannot be uh, light in this sense if you are a creature. So God is is not a creature in any way. He doesn't have a God. He wasn't made at any point in time. He is eternal, and he is eternally light, eternally good. That's who God is. And when you get that understanding, that, of course, allows him to define things on his terms in your mind. When you say, yeah, God is eternally the source of all that is good. He's ultimately the sovereign one in charge of all things, and... uh, He is, through and through, truth. Well, then when you get to something like love, you then, of course, allow God to define love how he defines it. And that's why it's really important to grasp this idea that God is light here from the very beginning. But from there, in uh, verse 6, he says, now getting personal with us, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So here the apostle is getting to this reality of knowing God and having a relationship with God. He says, if we say that 
we have fellowship with God, that we know God, that we have a relationship with Him, and yet we are walking in darkness. We are embracing the things that He has said is bad. We are embracing what is anti-light. <laughs> if we are hiding from His truth and believing lies, well, that shows us and shows everybody that we are actually lying. We don't have a relationship with God because God is light. And if you say you have fellowship with God, you're going to be attracted to the light. You're going to come out of the darkness. And this is, of course, a basic scientific principle that I have neglected to mention to this point. What is darkness, after all? Well, darkness is the absence of light. So when someone is in the darkness and yet says he's in the light with God, it's actually pretty obvious because God has set the terms. He's revealed what is good, what is true, what is lovely, what is pure. And so for someone to claim to be into all of that, to be fellowshipping with God and fellowshipping with others in that realm, and yet his or her lifestyle shows nothing but darkness, nothing but impurity, shows a desire for evil, a, des- a desire for lies, well, that reveals that that person is, is just truly a liar who does not actually have fellowship with God. You can say you have fellowship with God all you want. You can say that you're in the light all you want. But that doesn't make you in the light just because you say so. That's what John's getting at here. And so he he says, he goes on to say, continuing in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we do have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So all Christians meet together in the light. That's where our fellowship exists. Christians don't have fellowship in darkness. Christians have fellowship in light. And so if we are walking in the light, then yes, we truly do know God. We truly do have fellowship with God. We truly do have fellowship with His church. And these two ideas are linked together here in John's thinking, that if you say you are in the light and have fellowship with God, that will show itself by being in the light and have fe- having fellowship with fellow Christians. You can't say, yes, I've got fellowship with God. Uh, I know God. I'm in the light. I'm attracted to the light. The light is operative in my life. But church isn't for me. God's people, not for me. You can't do that. You simply cannot do that. I mean, of course, people do, but you can't do so in a way that's biblical or good. That, of course, is a sign of darkness, that you are rejecting the people of God, that you're walking away from God's church. The the thing that God's focused on during this time, this economy, this administration, and His big program is to build His church. Jesus Christ is building His church. And for you to say, yes, I'm walking in the light with Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church, that's... That's an antichrist view, actually. Now, you may actually be a believer. You may actually have been saved, but you're living in open rebellion when you reject the church of God. It's true. So, um, if we are walking in the light as He Himself is in the light, we really do have fellowship with one another. That's an evidence of us actually being in the light, is that we're fellowshipping with each other in the light. And we know, of course, that the blood of Jesus, His Son... God's one and only Son, cleanses us from all sin. And this really is what we're dependent on to be in the light in the first place. To be in the light, to have fellowship with God, and to have true fellowship with one another in the truth, that's dependent on being cleansed by the blood of Jesus from all of your sin, to be qualified 
to share in the light. And this is a verse that I didn't have pulled up. I have another one that's pulled up that we'll look at here in a moment. But it's making me think of Colossians chapter 1, I believe verse 12, verse 13. Um, yeah, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's what I want. But there's also, um, yeah, yeah, 12, 12 and 13. All right. I got it pulled up now, so I'll, I'll share it with you. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul gets at the same point, and this is, there's so many amazing things in Scripture, um, but this is one of them. When you've got two different apostles talking about the same thing, using the same terms, coming at it from different angles, in two different contexts, at two different time periods, oh, it's so cool. That's what's going on here. So we're reading about John, talking about being in the light, because we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and here we have Paul talking about that in Colossians 1 saying how um, he's been praying for the Colossians, verse 9, that he and his missionary team have not ceased to pray for you, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you would increase in knowledge, etc. And then he also says, we've been giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here's that light analogy being used again. Where God is, God is light. He himself is in the light. And Paul says he gives thanks to God the Father because for anybody who is in the light, anybody who's a true Christian who's in the light with God, that has happened because God has qualified that person to share in the inheritance of the saints in that light. He's qualified the person through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which last week we looked at how that happened on the cross. And of course, through his resurrection, his ascension on high, all of this work of Jesus Christ has qualified believers in Jesus Christ to be in the light. And adding to that, here's another one of those unfortunate breaks. I don't think there should be this gap between 12 and 13. Because he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, we can say he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see how the death of Jesus, the atoning work of Jesus, is so linked to our status before God in the light, being children of the light, being qualified before God, to stand before God, to be in His light? Because what would happen if someone who was unqualified tried to be in the light of God? Well, he would get zapped. He would incinerate instantaneously, because with his sin, trying to bring darkness into the light, it's just not going to work. It can't happen. We know this in the scientific realm, right? If you've got a spotlight shining down, um, that means darkness is scattering. I'm not using scientific terms here, but it's it's making the darkness go away because the darkness is the absence of light. So you, by definition, just cannot bring absence of light into light. You can't do it. Well, someone who is in his or her natural state, meaning the state we've inherited from a long line of people, starting with Adam, that's a sinful, dark condition. And you cannot bring that absence of light into the light of God. You must be qualified by God. You must be made light by the God of light in order to be in the light. And that happens through the atoning work of Jesus. Again, back in 1 John chapter 
1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, and that is the way through which we enter the light. Isn't that amazing? Okay, let's keep going. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And remember here, he's talking to Christians, too. Um, If Christians say that we're done sinning, we don't sin anymore, nothing we do could ever be considered sinful, we're, we're just perfectly righteous, well, we're deceiving ourselves, he says, and the truth is not in us. That's a really harsh clap back by John there. Yet, he follows that up with this beautiful truth, if we own up to our sins by confessing them, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But again, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So four things, if you say that you don't have sin anymore, one, you're deceiving yourself, two, the truth is not in you, three, you call God a liar, and four, his word is not in you. So really important that you recognize that you are a sinner, isn't it? That you still sin, whether you're a Christian or not. But the good news here I've kept highlighted here in verse 9 That when you own up to your sins by confessing them to God, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our sins, to forgive you all of your sins, to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness through your sinful deeds. Isn't that really, really good news? How does He do that? He does it through your confessing. All you do is say, Lord, I am a sinner, please forgive me. And he is faithful to do so on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come back to you and say, well, I do recognize that that's what you've done, and I appreciate you bringing it to my attention and owning up to it today. But here's what you'll have to do to repay me and uh, to get this off of your account. And then gives you a bunch of steps. Or like a strike on your driver's license, perhaps you've gotten that before, and it's like, okay, well, now it's got to be on there for a certain amount of time, or there's a certain amount of community service or something I've got to do to undo this bad mark on my record. That's not what God does. When you take your sins to God and you confess your sins to God, owning up to them and saying, I am responsible for rebelling against you, would you please, on the basis of what Jesus has done, would you please forgive me? He is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins. How could he be so faithful? Well, that's his nature, all right? That's that's what he is. He's a faithful God. When he promises mercy, when he promises grace, he follows through every time. He's faithful to that. If you come back to him for the thousandth time with a sin you've committed and you ask for forgiveness, he's faithful to continually forgive you. And to stick with you, sanctifying you, helping you find victory over that sin. Now, you've got some responsibility there in your Christian growth, of course, but God won't leave you. He won't forsake you if you are a believer in Jesus. He's, he's going to be faithful to you. And He's righteous by forgiving you, too. He's, he's righteous in this instant forgiveness. He's, he's righteous in doing so. How could that be? How could, how could a good judge just tell a murderer, oh, Okay, you're free to go. How is that righteous? Well, that's because God, as a good judge, doesn't just look at the murderer and say, meh, don't worry about it, off you go. He took the sin of the murderer, 
his act of murdering and placed that sin on his only son. That Jesus, as again, as we looked at last week, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So the murderer then is made free because the only son of God took on his sin and paid the penalty for him. So God poured out his wrath on the person of Jesus, his wrath toward all sin. Therefore, sinners can be innocent and blameless before God forever if they believe in the finished work of Christ. So that makes God righteous. He, he, he doesn't skirt his righteousness. He doesn't uh, set aside his righteousness when he forgives somebody on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. He upholds his righteousness. He upholds his goodness. He upholds truth when he forgives a sinner on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. It's really, really amazing. I mean, the gospel is, is wonderful. That's how simple and wonderful it is. And so John continues writing, saying, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But he goes right back to this idea of, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So again, this idea of God is faithful to immediately forgive you of your sins when you confess your sins to him in faith, faith in what Jesus has done to pay for your sins, not coming to God saying, here's what I'm doing to make up for my sins. God won't won't forgive you if that's the case. He, He couldn't. You could never make up for your sins. But when you look to Jesus, who paid the ultimate price for you, you can be forgiven. And it's not just that you go to the Father and you talk about Jesus and like Jesus is, you know, a a figment of your imagination or that he's just a figure of the past or whatever you want to say. It's not that. Jesus is actually presently involved in all this too. Did you catch that it says, whoops, it says here in uh, verse 1, that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is still working on our behalf. He didn't just die for us and that was it. He didn't just resurrect and ascend to heaven and that was it. He now continues working for us in his advocation of those who trust in him. He's our advocate with the Father. Well, what does that mean? Let's jump over to Hebrews 7 real quick. This is a passage we looked at recently where the author of Hebrews says that these former priests in Israel, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They had to be replaced when they died. You have one great high priest at a time, he croaks, you put in another one. But, verse 24, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And here's our amazing phrase since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why is Jesus continuing on living in heaven? What's he doing in heaven? What's the focus of Jesus' ministry today? It's making intercession for those who draw near to God through him. 
those who recognize what he has done in their place for their sins, who are being saved by God, by faith alone, by his grace. Those are the ones that Jesus advocates for. He makes intercession for us before the Father. We call on Jesus, and we are forgiven because he's our perfect advocate. Some of you are familiar with programs, like recovery programs, where you have an advocate. All of those advocates are inferior to Jesus. If you need to send an advocate before the Father for you, you're not going to pick one of those creaturely people like us, who wears the badge advocate, they, they could never sufficiently advocate for us or make intercession for us before the Father. But Jesus could. Trust in Jesus as your advocate, and you have guaranteed forgiveness every time you confess your sins. Because it says back in 1 John 2, 2, He Himself, Jesus, is the propitiation or satisfactory payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He paid it all in a sufficient way, a way that the Father accepted. He paid the full price for our sins. He covers us with His atoning death. We are absolutely covered. He paid it all. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Meaning, we now get to go offer everybody in the world this salvation. It's made available to all people that we can extend a genuine offer to be saved today by the grace of God through faith and the finished work of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Wow, so much to see in 1 John. That was just a little overview of a little passage. Thanks for listening today. I hope that was instructive, considering the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. you have any questions for me, send them in. We'd love to hear from you. God bless.